0: Jogcast. Faster than the speed of light. With Megan Argo, John Field, Melanie Jondra, Jen Gupta, Mel Earfan, Ian Morrison and Mark Perver. The Jogcast. October 2011 edition. Hello and welcome to The Jogcast. I'm Jen Gupta and joining me today is Melanie. Hello. Hello. So before we get started, I'd like to apologise for the show going out a bit late. It will at least be October the 3rd by the time you listen to this. Unfortunately, the university decided to turn off all the power to our building over the weekend, which means the website will have been
1: down and we can get the show out. I know. But at least we had a free weekend to like just stay in the sun because it's so beautiful today. Or we could transfer all of our work onto our laptops and uh, go and... Shush- you know, sh- okay.
0: Also, before we get started, we're contemplating having a JOD pub, a JODcast meetup in London on November the 12th, because quite a few of us are going to be in London on that weekend anyway. So if you want to come and meet us, we'll probably... I want to go to the Greenwich Observatory, so we'll probably do that because I get my way. Um, <laughs> get in touch with us if you want us to keep you informed of what's going on for that. In the show this time, we talk to Greg Sloan about Dust and Evolved Stars and we find out what you can see in the October night sky. But first, before all of that, here's
2: the news with Megan Argo. In the news this month, a primitive star in our own backyard, Kepler finds a planet with two hosts, and strange goings-on in the early solar system. Our current model of the early universe says that, as it expanded and cooled after the Big Bang, quarks began to coalesce to form protons and neutrons, which, when the temperature dropped far enough, began to form simple nuclei. Eventually this material, mainly hydrogen with some helium and trace amounts of lithium, began to clump together, forming the stars and galaxies that we see today. Heavier elements such as carbon, nitrogen and oxygen, in fact pretty much everything that makes up this planet and all of the life on it, were created later by processing of this primitive material in stars and supernova explosions. This processing in nuclear fusion reactions produces all of the rest of the heavier elements in the periodic table. Since less massive stars last longer before running out of fuel, there should be a population of very low-mass stars, which have been around since the early days of the universe. Such stars would be small, dim, and have extremely low proportions of elements heavier than hydrogen and helium, and, in a paper published in the journal Nature on September the 1st, a team led by Elisabetta Caffau at the University of Heidelberg in Germany have found just such a star in the halo of the Milky Way, but with an unusual chemical makeup. The star, located in the constellation of Leo, and known as SDSS J102915 plus 172927, has been found to have the lowest amount of elements heavier than helium of all stars yet studied, a quantity known as metallicity. While a few other primitive stars with very low metallicities have been found, the others all have carbon, nitrogen and oxygen in far greater quantities than would be expected for stars from the very first population, It is thought that low-mass stars such as these could only form after the interstellar gas had been enriched by supernova explosions with elements such as carbon and oxygen, since these elements act as a vital cooling agent, reducing the temperature of the gas cloud to the point where gravity can begin to overcome the pressure and cause the clumping which eventually leads to stars. This conclusion means that the low abundance of elements, including carbon, nitrogen and oxygen, in the newly discovered star does not fit with current models of star formation in the early universe. A further puzzle with this star is the amount of lithium it contains. Its lithium abundance is at least 50 times smaller than that predicted by Big Bang nucleosynthesis. The likely explanation is that the stellar material must have experienced temperatures greater than 2 million Kelvin, the temperature required to destroy lithium. While the chemical composition of this star is something of a challenge to current models of early star formation, Along with other examples that should be unearthed in planned surveys, it should provide clues which will help in our understanding of the very first stellar population. Much later in the Universe's history, when previous generations of stars had enriched the interstellar gas clouds with significant quantities of heavy elements, planets began to form. The formation of rocky planets such as the Earth requires substantial amounts of elements such as iron, oxygen, nickel and magnesium, so they could not form until at least some of the first generation of stars had died. We currently know of more than 680 extrasolar planets in the Milky Way, with several surveys searching for new examples. One of the latest is Kepler-16b, the first planet confirmed to be orbiting a double star. This so-called circumbinary planet was discovered by the Kepler spacecraft, a probe which stares at the stars in one patch of sky continuously watching for the tiny dips in brightness caused by planets passing in front of their host stars. So far, the only confirmed planets found by Kepler were orbiting single stars, but since the majority of stars in our galaxy actually exist in multiple systems, this discovery vastly increases the likely number of planets in our galaxy. The research team, led by Lawrence Doyle of the SETI Institute in the USA, used data from the Kepler satellite to find the new planet. The system, Kepler-16, consists of two stars in orbit around each other. The orientation of their orbit is such that, from our point of view on the Earth, as the stars orbit each other, they periodically eclipse one another, causing a drop in brightness as some of the light is blocked by the transiting star. The data, published in the journal Science during September, also showed that dimming occurred when the stars were not transiting each other, implying the existence of a third body in the system. The timing of these eclipse events showed that the additional object was in a wide orbit around both stars, not just orbiting one of them, and the orbital properties and amount of light blocked suggest that the planet has a mass about one-third that of Jupiter, and a size similar to Saturn. The planet's density is somewhat higher than Saturn's, however, suggesting a higher proportion of heavy elements. Saturn is composed mainly of hydrogen and helium gas, whereas the composition of Kepler-16b is thought to be approximately half-hydrogen helium gas and half-heavy elements in the form of ice or rock. The fact that the planet repeatedly transits both stars shows that it is orbiting in the same plane as the two stars, strongly suggesting that it formed along with the stars, rather than being captured by the stellar system some time after its formation. While the discovery of the first circumbinary planet vastly increases the total number of planets that are estimated to exist in our galaxy, Kepler-16b itself lies outside of the habitable zone of its parent stellar system, so is unlikely to host life. While more and more examples of exoplanets continue to be found, there still remain unanswered questions about our own planet and its formation. Certain elements such as nickel, cobalt and iridium are classed as siderophile, meaning iron-loving, and are rare on the Earth's surface because of their strong affinity for iron, the element which makes up roughly 88% of the Earth's core. During the Earth's formation, the heavy iron sank to the core of the planet, taking most of the siderophile elements with it, part of a process known as differentiation. But these elements are not as rare in the planet's crust today as might be expected. One possible explanation for this overabundance is that these siderophile elements might not be quite so iron-loving at the high temperatures and pressures which existed at the bottom of the early Earth's molten magma ocean. While this explanation works for some such elements, it does not work for all of them. Another source of this siderophile material in the crust could be meteorites or asteroids impacting the Earth's surface some time after the initial formation of the planet, after the core had formed, but while the solar system was still thick with large asteroids and embryonic planets. While there is plenty of evidence for such a late bombardment, from studies of the lunar surface as well as the Earth's, it is not certain that enough material would have been added in this late veneer to explain the measured abundances. But in a paper published in the journal Nature, a team show new evidence for just such a process. In their paper, published in Nature in September, Matthias Wilbold of the University of Bristol describes the analysis of samples from Isua in Greenland, which support the Veneer hypothesis. Using new sensitive measurements, Wilbold's team were able to determine the content of the isotope tungsten 182 in samples of rock to very high precision. Since tungsten 182 in the early Earth would have mainly ended up in the core, any enrichment in samples of rock would be evidence for the late Veneer theory. Using the new analysis methods, the researchers found that in most samples of rock from elsewhere on the planet, the abundance of tungsten 182 was what would be expected from the early Earth after differentiation, but samples from Isua in Greenland showed an increased level compared to the average for the Earth's mantle. The magnitude of the enrichment is exactly what is predicted by the late Veneer model, providing strong evidence for the late bombardment being the cause of an excess, albeit patchy, of siderophile elements in the Earth's crust. It is thought that the Earth's growth largely ended with the impact which formed the Moon about 100 million years after the start of the solar system, but new research dating rocks from the Apollo 16 landing site suggests that the Moon is either significantly younger than this, or that the Global Magma Ocean Theory may not be the whole story. The initial impact of the Earth with the Mars-sized body is thought to have resulted in a young moon with a warm magma ocean covering the entire surface. As the moon cooled, it underwent differentiation. Heavier elements sank while lighter materials rose, resulting in a crust of light silicate materials surrounding a denser core. The first silicates to form on the surface were and anorthocytes, or fans, thought to be the oldest lunar rocks. However, attempts to date samples of such rocks from the Apollo missions have given ambiguous results but a team led by Lars Borg of the Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory in the USA have used improved methods of isotopic dating to determine the age of the Moon more accurately than has been achieved before. What the results showed is that the fans are significantly younger than previously thought, a mere 4,360 million years, implying that the Moon solidified some 200 million years after the formation of the solar system, somewhat later than previous estimates. The team used two isotopic tracers, the ratio of lead 204 to lead 206, and that of samarium 147 to Neodymium 143, with both traces giving the same age. Comparing this new result with the ages of the oldest rocks on the Earth, zircons from deposits at Jack Hills in Western Australia, suggests that the Moon differentiated some 30 million years after the Earth, implying either that it accreted very slowly, or kept enough internal heat to delay the solidification of the surface magma ocean. The alternative explanation is that the sample is not from cooling of a global magma ocean, but instead is the result of a more recent melting event, since the magma ocean theory which is used to explain the observed planetary structures was developed using these rocks. And finally, September saw the launch of another mission to the Moon, the Gravity Recovery and Interior Laboratory, or GRAIL. Based on a tried and tested concept, The twin spacecraft will orbit the Moon, mapping not its surface, but its interior. The two probes are built using the same design as the Gravity Recovery and Climate Experiment or GRACE, another pair of satellites which have been in orbit around the Earth since 2002, mapping the planet's gravity field in exquisite detail. Although carrying several cameras, the GRAIL satellites are not mapping the surface, and the returned images are not the point of the mission. The satellites actually only carry one scientific instrument a high-frequency radio link between the two craft, which will be used to measure the distance between them to very high precision as they orbit the Moon at a height of 55 kilometres. When one of the probes passes over a region of higher density, like a mountain, the slight increase in gravitational force will cause it to speed up slightly, altering the separation from its companion. The result of the mission will be the most detailed map of the lunar gravity field ever made, helping scientists understand events such as giant impacts and how the moon's layers formed as it cooled. Results that, in turn, could help in our understanding of the entire inner solar system, including our own planet. Thanks for that, Megan.
0: So I keep on going on about how there's too many people with their names beginning with M in the jobcast. I don't see what you mean. I don't know. There's Mark, there's Melanie, there's Megan, and now we've got a new jobcaster, Mel. So Mark and Mel talked to Greg Sloan
1: about evolved stars. At least the speaker is Greg with a G. <laughs> Here's the interview.
3: Today, Mel and I are interviewing Dr. Greg Sloan of Cornell University, New York State, and he works on evolved stars, dust, and the chemical evolution of galaxies. At least that's as much as I know, because I don't know all that much about what you do, so perhaps you could just tell us what kind of research you're interested in at the moment. Well, let's see, I could
4: tie this into the chemical evolution of galaxies, because evolved stars inject a lot of freshly processed... Nuclear products back into the interstellar medium. So, in that sense, that's that's my I mean that's my focus, right? So, in other words, these stars they're the source of this stuff, and so I focus on them, how they die, and how they can inject the stuff back in. Because if they take a long time to go through this death process, if it's a big, long, agonizing, slow, painful process, then they can actually generate a lot more heavy elements and inject them back in. But if it goes really quick, they don't do so much for us. Okay. So it's kind of a question of over the history of the universe, how the initial conditions. Of the stars, have changed, and how that changes what they can produce.
3: So, to you, so, the stars are the things that are seeding the galaxies with the sort of materials we see around us today. Yes, yeah.
4: So, the really massive stars are supernovae, and they're responsible. They become supernovae, and they're responsible for a really big fraction of this of this enrichment. And then, less massive stars, like the sun, to stars up to a few times the mass of the sun, are responsible for the rest. And I've been focused on those because uh, I mean, the supernovae happen really quick it's kind of hard to figure out exactly what they're doing.
3: Okay. And do you look mostly around in the Milky Way to see what the local galaxy is like, or are you able to look at other galaxies out there as well?
4: Well, we started with the Milky Way because these evolved stars are actually some of the brightest stars in the sky, especially if you look at infrared wavelengths. You know, as you go from the optical to infrared, these stars, they start to dominate the sky. Most everything you can see in the infrared is, a, is, one, of these, is one of these evolved stars. So that's how I started. But in the Past couple of decades, as I've been going, the, the telescopes have gotten better and better, and, and we can see further and further. And and so now I've been picking out individual stars in some of the nearby galaxies to the Milky Way, which has been a lot of fun because these stars are they were born in very different conditions. They were born with you know much more like the early primitive universe with very few heavy elements. We should probably back up. This is one point, and one of the key things that people should realize is that when the universe formed, there was pretty much nothing but hydrogen and helium. Anything heavier than that, carbon, nitrogen, oxygen, and all the heavier elements, you had to wait for stars to form and then die and blow the stuff back out into space before you could have any of this stuff. And so, you know, for the first few billion years after the the universe formed, if we understand this correctly now, you couldn't even make planets because you didn't have any of these heavy elements. So everything
3: that... And we see down here on Earth is all part of a recycled
4: process. Oh, sure. Process. Yeah, you know, I always... Um, the, the Carl Sagan, who he actually taught at Cornell, right? And so before me, much better than me, too, I, I should add. But, you know, he always likes to say things that people are made of star stuff. And this is, this is completely true. You know, so all the... You know, everything besides the hydrogen in us, we don't have a lot of helium in us. Everything besides the hydrogen was all generated by stars. And you have to wait a long time from the beginning of the universe to build up enough of those heavy elements to make life... To make planets, all of that, and so this is what I'm trying to convince people to pay for my research. Hmm. You know, you always want to sort of put this in at the beginning that this is kind of what we're trying to get at is is the enrichment history of the universe and the and the and the abundance history. But in the end, I don't really pay much too much attention to the galaxies. I, I like looking at the at these stars. Okay.
5: Where does the sort of the abund- well, say for a stereotypical star after it dies, where does it reach the end of fusion? What what kind of elements are we talking about? It's spitting out. Where all right. Reaches- Right. Okay,
4: well, just to, just to start, so most stars, they spend most of their lifetime in what we all call the main sequence. You guys have probably mentioned that one on other podcasts, right? And on the main sequence, they're fusing hydrogen into helium, so you get less hydrogen, more helium. But then as stars, yeah, so then stars they evolve as a red giant. They're, just, they're still doing that, but they can't do it in the core because the core is just inert now. And it's just it's just all helium, and they can't make anything bigger. But on the then they they basically go through a few uh, bends and twists, and they finally reach this point where they're fusing helium. It takes three helium nuclei to make a carbon atom. This is a really bizarre process because it turns out you have to make beryllium, and beryllium happens to have this 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 one state where it has a high cross section, and you can actually kind of make this leap, and you can make carbon from that. This was a big uh, a really big deal when they just dis- when they figured this out in the early 1950s had saw Peter Cornell
3: and was kind of part of that. So I know all about this lore. So then carbon is being formed late in the lives. Of this Very, space. yeah, right
4: at the end. And and uh, so more massive stars can make heavier elements. They'll make more nitrogen, they'll make they'll make oxygen. And then all the heavier stuff, you kind of, for most of that, you have to look towards the really massive stars that become supernovae. But most of what's left, if you take hydrogen and helium and you remove it, most of what's left in the universe is carbon, nitrogen, and oxygen. And the same is true for most of the planets around the sun. We're kind of the exception because here
3: you see heavier stuff because the there's no helium and hydrogen to dilute it, or very little. So are we are somewhat of an exceptional kind of on our solar little
4: system? on our little. Well, no, we're we're exceptional on our little terrestrial world called Earth. Okay, right. You know, if you look at most of the mass in the solar system, that's not in the sun. It's in Jupiter, and Saturn, and Uranus and Neptune, and they're mostly made of hydrogen, just like the sun.
3: So finding worlds like the Earth around other stars might not be just as simple then as finding something that's in what we call the habitable zone, where the temperature is right, but also the abundances of materials is important. Well, they're hard to see, right? They're, you know, all the tr- all the tricks that people use. I don't actually, I,
4: I haven't done too much in the exoplanet hunt. It's kind of fun to look over the shoulders of some of the people who are doing it. But yeah, the, basically all the methods that we use to find these things are very biased towards the more massive, the Jupiters. There, we're getting to the point where we can find. Well, they're getting to the point where they can find terrestrial worlds, but we're not quite there yet. Getting close. Yeah, so my focus is more just looking at these stars as the machines that generate these elements that enrich galaxies
3: you know, in the universe. And when you look out into the neighboring galaxies and you see that these stars are different in composition to the ones around us, why is that? Is that a selection effect or are those galaxies actually ha- have had a different history? They've had yeah, they've had a different history
4: so the the Milky Way is very special we you know it's it's a spiral galaxy it has a disk and in that disk there's been a lot of star formation over the past all of them, 13.7 billion years and so, you, so you've had a lot of star formation so you get a lot of stars making heavy elements and then that material forms into new stars and so it just keeps enriching and enriching and enriching and so we get up to what we call solar abundances but most galaxies out there they're not spirals they're just ellipticals or spheroidals and they have no disk and so the star formation rates are much lower in many cases the star formation rates are pretty much zero these days they've gone through a few episodes where they produce stars so the enrichment history is much different they haven't made a lot of stars, so they're, they're much more primitive. They're much closer to the abundances the, the abundance patterns that we had at the, at the very beginning of the universe. And depending on their star formation histories, each one of these, in a way, is looking back to a different time in the early universe. And so we can look at these different galaxies and sort of use them as time machines to see what the stars would be enriching the environment around them with at different times in the history of the universe.
3: So is that because they are so far away that we're looking a lot back in time, or is it because those galaxies have basically stayed roughly how they are for Other, a very no. long time?
4: These galaxies are right next door. Okay. In the cosmological sense of it, these galaxies are only, you know, hundreds of thousands of light years away. They're In fact, the ones that we're looking at are considered to be in the Milky Way half of what we call the local group. So there's maybe... A dozen or a couple dozen of these galaxies orbiting around the Milky Way, and then there's another similar number orbiting around M31, the Andromeda galaxy, and there's a few odds and ends to add to that. But that basically makes up the Local Group, and we're still we're all within what couple million light years from the Milky Way. So nearby cosmologically. Oh yeah, right next door. So any 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 redshifts you see are just because they're orbiting each other. That's not a cosmological redshift. So. But they haven't changed. As you were
3: saying, as much yeah, they don't. Yeah, or, yeah, exactly.
4: Yeah, so the star formation rate's low, and and so the, like as, as I said, right next door, close enough so that we can pick out the individual stars and actually study them fairly carefully. We have these these little time machines.
5: So is the difference sort of entirely dependent on shape of, of galaxy? It's just because we are spiral and we have a disk and we have lots of star forming regions, or is there other other reasons that they won't have as much of
4: Oh, that's an interesting question, and a little bit outside of my research area. So this is just, I mean, I can just kind of pass along what I think I know from uh, going to talks and seminars and and reading some of the papers. Yeah, even in a spiral galaxy, it seems like the star, there's sort of a a level of star formation rate, which is certainly high compared to what you see in an elliptical. But the star formation rate, as I understand this, really is driven by mergers and encounters with other galaxies. So when one of these dwarf spheroidals comes very close to the Milky Way, for example, that might kickstart a burst of star formation, especially if it merges in. I know that at some point M31, at some point in the distant future, we don't have to worry about when this is going to happen because it's like billions of years away, but at some point M31, the nearest spiral and the Milky Way will merge. And when that happens, there will be a very impressive burst of star formation that will pretty much blow everything that we're currently looking at out of the water. But and even these dwarf spheroidals, I mean, we see that the evidence appears to be that the that the star formation in these guys comes in bursts too, which might be a result of uh, encounters with galaxies like our own, or maybe they got too close to each other. These are very open questions, by the way.
6: Mm-hmm.
3: So one of the things that you're interested in studying is dust shells around dying stars. What do those dust shells tell us, and how do you work out? the information that they're giving?
4: Well, the dust is it's an interesting question. The, the, the reason I started studying the dust around these stars is because it's what you can see. So a star is losing mass, right? So gas is, is being pushed away from the star. And as that gas cools, it actually reaches the point where it, it can condense into dust grades. It's very much like water vapor condensing into ice crystals and clouds here in the Earth's atmosphere. It's the same idea. Sometimes you've got water vapor, but if conditions are right, then these ice crystals will form. And so what happens is, is that as these stars are losing mass and the gas cools, they'll make these dust grains. And it turns out that um, there's a few things that happen because of that. If you have enough dust around a star, that dust completely obscures the star at optical wavelength. So these stars just drop out of the sky. And this has actually happened, you know, where stars were visible... And then there's a huge dust formation event, usually because it's in some kind of interacting binary system or something very strange. But this, you know, these these dust formation events happen, and the star just gets really, really faint. The classic one is Eta Carina in the southern hemisphere. You can see this guy, and it's been through a, f- a few of these episodes. If the star drops out of the optical sky, though, that the light, the, the all the energy that star is giving off is still being processed by the dust shell and being re-radiated at just at different wavelengths. And because the dust is cooler, it's most of this light's re-emitted in the infrared and so as these stars drop out of the optical sky they get very bright in the infrared and that's why the infrared sky is dominated by these evolved stars it's just everywhere you look there's all these these dust shells they're just stars
5: over what sort of time scale would it suddenly drop out of the optical and flare up in the infrared
4: well for the kind of stars i look at it would take a while but for some of these events it literally it happens over the course of a few months you know somebody goes out and they're kind of checking through the objects they looked at a couple months ago and boom that one's not there. People can go and, and, I mean, they can read a little bit more about Eta Carina. That's like the classic example. Sometime about 100, 120 years ago, just went through this dimming process. And brighter objects have done it too. Betelgeuse and Orion has produced dust episodically, and so it's gotten a little fainter here, that kind
3: of thing. And what is the infrared light coming from then tell us about the dust that's enshrouding them? Well,
4: if you look at the, if you if you break the light up and you look at it, You know, so you can see how much energy it's giving off at different wavelengths. We call this looking at its spectrum. You can tell very quickly because different types of dust emit at certain wavelengths. Silicate dust has a very classic signature. Carbon-rich dust has a different signature. And so we can tell very quickly. We can learn about the chemistry of the dust, which is almost always related to to the chemical
3: compositions in the star. So are you sort of doing a bit of detective work trying to work back from what you see in that dust cloud to what the nature of the star is or has been? Yes. That's, that's, that's exactly it. In fact,
4: it's interesting because we've, been, I've made a lot of progress on certain research lines, but the, the question that really got me interested years ago when I was still a graduate student still hasn't been answered. We, there's a certain kind of a silicate rich or I should say oxygen rich. Silicates basically are made of one silicon atom to three or four oxygen atoms. And so silicate dust is oxygen-rich dust. And there's other kinds of oxygen-rich dust. There's alumina, um, and then you get crystalline versions of this dust versus the normal amorphous dust that we see. And there's some very strange dust spectra, which we see in certain cases, but we've never understood why we see it there, and we still don't. It's just kind of this lingering, nagging question, which I realize,
3: even though I've been able to write lots of scientific papers on lots of cool scientific results. That one continues to bug me. So, I mean, we we obviously use a lot of silicon here on Earth today. So, is it the question of how did that get there? On how the Earth, there's so much, or in space? Well, both, I suppose. I mean, uh, I'm assuming that at some point we've inherited that silicon from a silica disc from a, right. from, a, so, from another star that existed in the past.
4: Yeah. So, if you go back and you look at the theories about how the the solar system formed, right? The idea is that the planets condensed out of, you know, condensed to a process of collisions and and accretion of small grains and the bigger grains. And so basically the planets all came from the dust grains. Except that in the outer solar system, the dust grains were unprocessed. It had mantles of lots of ices. And then and then they, they had enough mass to pull down all the gas. But in the inner solar system, the, the dust grains were just the silicates and just the carbon. All the ice was gone because they're too close to the sun. And so the idea is that the Earth would have formed with a lot of these heavier elements
3: and very little of the lighter ones. That's the very simple version of events. Mm-hmm. You're so trying to work out where those elements came from or why they mm-hmm. surround certain stars. Yeah. So the
4: question is... You know I said earlier I said that anything heavier than carbon nitrogen oxygen is produced in supernovae. The, that's the short answer. The longer answer is some of the more massive stars which still behave still evolve like the sun, they can produce some of these heavier elements. We know that now if they can hang around long enough in these last phases of their life, there's a, a woman named um, Amanda Caracas who works in Australia who's been doing a lot of really good stuff, and then John Latanzio as well. And by the way, if I mispronounce those names, you just have to edit
6: that part. <laughs> okay.
4: But uh, so they've been doing lots of really cool models, lots of really good models showing these more advanced nuclear reaction sequences and stuff. But these all depend on how much mass the stars have lost up to that point because that's what's going to determine how hot the gas is inside and that's going to determine what d- drives the reaction rates. And so it's all intertwined. And I'm very interested in the questions of about how this dust forms how the you know the composition of the dust is related to the properties of the star, and then how the composition of this dust determines how much mass the star is going to lose. Because once you get the dust condensing out of the gas, the radiation pressure of the star can usually drive the whole mass loss process, but you have to cross that threshold to get there. So it's all this really intertwined series of questions, and the answer to one is interrelated to the answers to the others. So it's a, it's a big, fat mess, okay. and it's and it's our job to sort of solve the puzzle one or two piece at, pieces at a time, right? You sort of assemble what we got and kind of go from there.
5: Would you be able to use the dust clouds to say how old... The, so, like, if you were looking at a star and it was in the optical and then over a period of a couple of months, it suddenly switched off and went into infrared, so you know the dust cloud has just formed, can you tell the age of the star or would you already need to know the mass? Is it too intertwined with other variables?
4: It's pretty intertwined. We can't, it's very difficult to figure out how old the star is. Typically what we do is we look, um, ideally we can, we can observe some of these evolved stars in a cluster of stars. And if you have a cluster, that sort of means all the stars were formed at about the same time. And you can figure out exactly what mass the stars are that are, that are leaving the main sequence or ending their hydrogen-burning lifetime. And from that, you can figure out how old everything is. And you can, it's pretty reasonable to assume that they're all the same age. And then you've got it. But normally, you know, if you're just looking at stars in the field in the galaxy or even in some of these nearby galaxies, you can't do that. And it's even worse in our own galaxy because you don't know how far away these stars are if they're not in a cluster. If they're just in the field, they could, it's, it's a problem. So we don't know how bright they are. We don't know how massive they are. This is one of the, another reason that drives us to look at these stars in these nearby galaxies because we know how far away they are which means we can can work out exactly how bright they are, how luminous they are intrinsically.
3: And if you can make conclusions about the chemistry of those type of stars, then perhaps you can relate their stellar type to ones that are in our galaxy and kind of find out how far away they should be according to the models of what the star is. You'd
4: think... (laughs) <laughs> I, guess it's a bit complicated. I have played some. Uh, you know, I've played some games with trying to to develop some other ways of, of estimating their distances. But remember, even you know, even if I've got a good method, we have a couple of them that we've worked out now. We've actually done that with with some of the people who have been here at Manchester, Eric Legadec, who was you know, here for a bit, and uh, Makako Matsura, who was here before him. Yeah, but even then, you know, it's like plus or minus. Twenty thirty forty percent, you know so we don't really know the distances very accurately at all to the to the galactic stars.
3: well, some of the latest infrared studies I know that you use the Spitzer Space Telescope for uh, so maybe you could just tell us what is your favorite research projects that's going on with Spitzer at the moment
4: Well so let's see the Spitzer Space Telescope was launched in August of 2003 and it exhausted its liquid helium in to, May of 2009 and it's actually still going. You can do a little bit without that liquid helium, but with the liquid helium, you can cool the instruments down, and they, become, and they can be very sensitive. So I did a lot of work with a spectrometer, and of course, we can't use it anymore. So at this stage, we have a lot of data which we took, you know, really, really neat spectra of lots of different kinds of, of all-stars in different locations, and so right now, I'm just working to, to get those data published, and, and get those out, and analyze so that people can kind of see what we learn from that. But at this stage, I'm sort of thinking about the future because um, we can't do any more of this with the Spitzer Space Telescope. And the James Webb Space Telescope is still very far off in the future hmm. and somewhat uncertain at this stage. And so I have to kind of think about trying things at uh, different wavelengths. That's that's what, for example, ALMA is uh, is a new frontier.
3: Which is longer wavelengths,
4: almost on the way to radio. Very much so, but that will allow us to get a better handle on what the gas is doing, because you can use ALMA. So far, we've just been studying the dust. That's what you can do in the infrared. But if you want to look at the gas, it's really good to go into the to radio wavelengths, where you can see transitions, molecular transitions, and use that to trace the gas is doing. Is that the gas outflows? Exactly. From stars? That would be the gas in the outflows from the stars.
5: So then if you're looking more into radio wave, does that mean you'd be able to use the Planck satellite for some of your research?
4: Well, Planck is its interesting because, of course, all of the objects we want to look at are just sort of foreground objects in the way that they have to get rid of from yep. their sample to do what they want to do. I haven't thought too much about that. I'm not quite sure. I know that the—you the, know Planck is sort of the latest version of this effort to map the anisotropies, the, the variations in the cosmic microwave background. One of the first experiments to do that was uh, COBE. What, was, what did COBE stand for? The Cosmic Background Explorer. I get vague on, on, on these acronyms after a while. But COBE had a whole bunch of different detectors and experiments on it. And some of those have proven really useful to, to my collaborators. I've been relying on, on their work on this. But those are much shorter wavelengths. You, you, you could do continuum dust emission at these really long wavelengths if the dust were very, very cold. So there's stuff you could do, but for most of my objects, the dust we're interested in is a bit warmer. I haven't, I I know that with Herschel, some of my colleagues have been very busy looking at the cooler dust around these objects and and also looking at some of the molecular transitions. But, uh, I've been busy with Spitzer data, so I've let them uh, work on that.
3: Dr. Greg Flohan, thank you very much. Well, thanks a lot for, uh, letting me, uh, letting me go.
1: Thanks for that, Mark and Mel. Now it's the time for, you know, the things that we don't know where else to put the odds and ends. So do you have anything? I do, but I also have a cold and a very bad
0: throat, so I'm going to try and keep this brief. On the 29th of September, China launched its first space laboratory, which is called Tiangong-1. Wow, you
1: speak Chinese so well. I know.
0: Well, we did a video a while ago at the Museum of Science and Industry which was about the Chinese space programme, so if you want to know a bit more of history about that, you can check that out on our website. This was launched on a Longmarsh rocket, Um It's going into orbit about 350 kilometres above the Earth. It's a 10.5 metre long cylindrical module, and for now it's going to be unmanned. So they're going to leave it up there for a while without anyone on it. But in a few weeks' time, China's apparently going to launch one of their unmanned spacecraft and then try
1: to link the two up together in space. Like making their own space station?
0: Yeah. And then as long as that all goes well, next year they're planning two manned missions, which will apparently maybe include their first female astronaut or Ooh. whatever they call astronauts.
1: I wonder what they're going to call them. That would be like, oh, we should have contest.
0: How should I've they know, call I've their know, astronauts? They've, they've got a name, I just can't pronounce it. Oh. <laughs> so I'm not even going to attempt. But that's really cool. Like China seems to be very proactive with their space program, but we don't tend to find things out about it in advance.
1: Yeah. But cool. That's cool. Yeah. I have something that's uh, also space-related. So the uh NASA announced that uh they're starting the development of a space launch system an advanced heavy lift launch vehicle. Ooh. So you know how they stopped the shuttle and we were all sad because yeah. you know no more shuttle but they're going to have like a new thing um it's it's a more commercial thing where they're going to use it to bring people and stuff on the space station but um they also say that uh it uh, it will go to earth orbit and destinations beyond so so maybe, this is
0: one that nasa's developing to take us to asteroids and stuff and I'm, then
1: i'm guessing yeah they're paying private companies as well to do the iss stuff yes i think that's to nasa uh, now i think that's the plan and uh, so they use the technologies from space shuttle program and the constellation program so that's so the one that they canceled they canceled yeah. yeah and so they're hoping to have their first flight uh, around 2017 so okay. that's pretty cool i'm happy to know that because i was sad when the shuttle stopped yeah and then on an unrelated news okay i know it's not related but it's about um it's still about space isn't everything on the Jobcast about space yeah but this one's about space and dinosaurs Ooh, come on that's my, that's my favorite combination uh so the um nasa whitefield infrared survey explorer the wise telescope uh, looked into the asteroid family that is believed to be responsible for the extinction of dinosaurs.
2: Ooh.
1: Um, and found out that it's probably not the one, the family we thought it was.
0: Okay. So there were, there's a group of asteroids somewhere in space so, that we thought.
1: Yeah. Basically, the idea, like, there was a paper in 2007 that said, well, there's this big family of asteroids that comes from the collision of a big asteroid and another big asteroid. It's called the Batista. Or Battistina? It's called this the Batistina. Is, This is an episode where we can't pronounce anything. Yeah, we That's can't fine. pronounce anything. Um, family of asteroids. And so the idea is that there's this asteroid that got hit by another one. It made a lot of debris and they expanded and everything. And then one of them hit Earth. Okay. And the what they did is that they calculated the age of the asteroid. Uh, original asteroid by looking at optical light like in 2007 and said, well, the collision must ha- have happened about 160 million years ago. And then by the time the debris, you know, developed and moved and everything, debris would have hit Earth around 65 million years ago, which is like, hey, that's, that's where the dinosaurs left. Okay. Um, and they did that by looking at um, optical light being reflected off the asteroid. Yeah. But the problem is that, you know, it has to be reflected off. Whereas if you look in infrared, which is what WISE did, you look at the light actually from the asteroid, emitted by the asteroid.
0: So this is kind of like using a heat camera on it. Yeah, pretty
1: much. And so they redid the calculation using infrared instead of optical. And they said, well, actually, we think the uh, edge of the collision is about 80 million years ago. So half the age we thought it was, which means it would not be possible for this asteroid family to be the one that killed the dinosaurs. Oh. So we still think asteroids killed the dinosaurs. We just... Don't think that the one, the family we thought. Okay. Um, so now we
0: need to go and find it. I guess so. Cool. Yes. Let's go on a mission, a cast mission. <laughs> find the uh, killers <laughs> of the dinosaurs. <laughs> if any of the space dinosaurs had lasers, then that would be my favorite ever. <laughs> couple more things. Um, the 4th to the 10th of October is World Space Week, as it is every year. So if you go on worldspaceweek.org, you can find out what events are going on in your country. There doesn't seem to be too much going on in the UK, but there's lots going on elsewhere. And finally, we've had some really good um, aurora displays recently. There's a really cool picture that I saw that was taken from the International Space Station. Ooh, cool. Looking down on the southern aurora. So I think that's the aurora Australis. Yes. And that was taken on September the 17th, and it's really, really awesome. That is brilliant. So we'll link to that in the show notes. And the aurora's been so good that it's actually been seen... All over England. It's come quite far. Uh, I haven't far seen, down seen south any in Winchester. Well, that's because it's always cloudy here. Aww. But Science Oxford on Twitter was posting some pictures and a time lapse that they took in Buckinghamshire on the 26th and 27th of September. Very cool. Yeah, and I, I think like it was the I think it was seen as far south as Winchester, which is where I'm from, so I'm jealous. But my parents didn't see it, so that's fine. Okay. And if you want to know what else is up in the night sky as you're out there looking for the aurora, Here's Ian Morrison to tell you what you can see in the northern night sky this month.
6: Well, October 2011. I've just got back from a lovely few days at the Equinox Star Party at Kelling Heath in North Norfolk, where everything is done to keep the light levels down. It's a sea of little red lights all around the place. You're not allowed anything bright. And it is amazing what you can see if your eyes get fully dark adapted from a really dark sight. So I would urge you, sometimes when there's no real moon around, to get somewhere like North Norfolk, North Devon, Mid Wales, or even Galloway in Scotland, where it's really dark. It's amazing what you can see, with the Milky Way arcing overhead, coming down through Cygnus. And uh, if it is really dark, you'll see there's quite a nice dark region splitting up the Milky Way. It's called the Cygnus Rift. And that's around, of course, the so-called Summer Triangle, which we still see very well in autumn, from Altair in Aquila, Vega in Lara, and Deneb in Cygnus the Swan. As I've said before, if you run with some binoculars up from Aquila towards Vega, you'll find a nice asterism, which is called Brocky's Cluster, or the Coat Hanger, because it looks just like an upside-down Coat Hanger. If it really is dark you'll make out a very sweet constellation called Delphinus the Dolphin, below and to the left of Cygnus the Swan. And above that, there's a tiny constellation called Sagata, the arrow. If you've got some 10 by 50 binoculars, say, and it really is dark, find the head star, the tip of the arrow, and gently sweep upwards. You may well pick up a little fuzzy blob. It's called the Dumbbell Nebula. It's a planetary nebula. It's what happens when a star like our sun comes to the end of its life. The central core collapses down to about the size of the Earth and becomes what's called a white dwarf. And the outer parts blow out into space, forming a shell or a torus around the central star. These are called planetary nebula because they look a little bit like planets. It's well seen with a small telescope, but I did spot it with binoculars under the Norfolk skies. Coming across you come across the Great Square of Pegasus. And that's a good starting point to find our nearest giant galaxy, the Andromeda Nebula. Start at the top left-hand star, it's called Alpha Rats or Alpha Andromedae. Move around to the left and up a bit, two stars. There turn sharp right. There's one further star you come to, and then another, and then you should see a little fuzzy glow. Easy with binoculars on a dark night, and if your eyes are good and dark adapted, you'll see it with your unaided eye as well. I put a chart on the night sky page that's now up for October, and that will help you find it. If it really is dark, and you find Andromeda easily, it might well be worth looking for the third largest galaxy in our local group, called M33. It's in Triangulum. All you have to do, in principle, is to bring your binoculars back down to the point where you turn sharp right and just keep going very gently, perhaps a little bit up to the left, and you may come across a little grey smudge in the sky. That's M33. Although, in total, it's got relatively high magnitude, the light spread out over quite a large region, so it actually looks to me like a little bit of tissue paper stuck on the sky, a region just a little bit brighter than the surroundings, but it's nice to see it anyway. Well, moving over from there, in fact, late in the evening, we see Taurus rising with that lovely group of stars called the Pleiades. Often I don't really talk about the stars we see in the north, and perhaps we should do. It's very easy to see, to the north and almost overhead, the constellation of Cassiopeia, a rather open W. If you follow down from that towards the constellation of Perseus, There's a very nice region along the Milky Way and between the two you actually find what's called the double cluster of Perseus. Little hazy glows, what you'll see with your unaided eye, but binoculars might show two little fuzzy blobs and those are the two clusters that make up the double cluster. So it's a very nice time of year to spend several hours at night. You have the lovely region around Cygnus to see in the early evening. You've got Pegasus and Andromeda and then you have Perseus and Taurus. And if you stay up pretty late at night, as we were doing, then in fact Orion will rise, and you can look at the lovely Orion Nebula. Well, what about the planets? Well, this month, really, the star of the show, I shouldn't say star, the planet of the show, is Jupiter. It's going to be rising soon after sunset, and will be visible later in the month throughout the whole night. I think about the 29th of the month is actually at opposition. It's basically due south at midnight and about 47 degrees elevation. Now that's far higher than it has been over the last few years, which means you're seeing it then through much less of the atmosphere. The views with our telescopes should be absolutely stunning and I was looking at it at that elevation just the other night and it really was very good. I cannot think of any better reason for buying a small telescope at the present time just to have a look at Jupiter and its four Galilean moons. It's going to be 50 arc seconds across by the end of the month, and that's because, in fact, Jupiter is currently quite close to perihelion, which means it's nearest the Sun, which of course means it's nearest the Earth. So it's about as big as it ever gets in the sky. The equatorial belts are there, the south one has come back, it was missing last year, and Nestling in it, you'll find the great red spot. Not that easy to see, but I have put a list on the website which tells you some times in the evening when the great red spot is actually on the meridian. That's facing directly towards us. That may help you find it. Well, Saturn and Mercury, we don't see this month. Saturn passes behind the Sun on the 18th. That's superior conjunction. And we're not going to see that until it reappears in the pre-dawn sky In a month or so. Likewise Mercury passed behind the sun on the twenty eighth of September, so it's still behind and we won't see that either. But we haven't quite finished because we have Mars. Now as of the first of October, Mars lies in Cancer, and it's basically moving down to the left from the lovely little cluster called the Beehive cluster or Prisipi. So it's moving down from Cancer towards Leo. It's about five point two arc seconds across at the moment, which is not very big. It is possible under nights of good seeing you might just make out some of the more obvious details, such as the V shape of Certis Major and the North Polar Cap. But time will come when it's over ten arc seconds across early in the new year, and that's when we'll have a lovely view, and it will be our star planet earlier in the next year. And finally Venus. Well, that passed behind the sun on the 15th of August, and it's still fairly far on the far side of the sun, so it's 94% illuminated, and it's about 10 arc seconds across. It gets much bigger when it's nearer to us. It's only just visible after sunset at the beginning of October. You might just pick it up if you have a very low southwestern horizon It's at a magnitude of minus 3.9, so it's quite bright, but low down, you may well need binoculars to see it. Venus will be better towards the end of the month when it's actually further away from the sun and somewhat easier to spot. Well, finally, some highlights. Well, there is one possible dramatic event this month, but it's only possible. If it's clear on October the 8th, that's a Saturday, in the evening, from about 8 o'clock onwards, Try and get yourself somewhere where it's pretty dark and you have a very good low northwestern horizon. Looking up towards Vega, which is now beginning to set in the northwest. Because there is the constellation of Draco the dragon. It is the radiant of a meteor shower we call the Draconics because they come from the constellation of Draco. And they result from the debris released as the comet Yacobini Zinner goes round the Sun. Now, with the majority of meteor showers that we observe, like the Perseids in August and the Leonids next month in November, the debris, the little dust particles, have spread all round the orbit. So it doesn't really matter too much when the Earth crosses that orbital track, we will pick up a meteor shower. Now, the particles from the Draconids have not yet managed to spread round the orbit. And so we only get a shower when we are relatively close to where the comet is in the sky. And that happens about once every 13 years. And it's pretty obvious this must be one of those years. But when it does, because that material is still pretty well clumped, you can get what is called a meteor storm, which when the peak rate of meteors that you see might exceed 100 per minute or around 6,000 per hour. That's really quite dramatic. One of these was seen in 1933. Interestingly, in 1946, Bernard Lovell at Jodrell Bank, our observatory, the University of Manchester's radio observatory, detected a daytime shower from these little dust particles, which was also around 6,000 per hour. Now, we do not know we'll get something as dramatic as that, but we don't know how good it could be. The peak time is between 8pm and 10pm on the evening of October the 8th. If it is clear, I do urge you to go and try and have a look. You never know what you might see. But please don't blame me if you don't see very much. There's another meteor shower in October, around the 21st. It's called the Orionids. In fact, it lasts for a few days, so any clear night around that do have a look towards the constellation of Orion or above it in the sky, is preferable as that rises late in the evening or in the early morning. Sadly, we'll have a waning gibbous moon, and that will hang in the east, so that will hide the fainter trails, but it's nevertheless worth a try. So before dawn, when Orion's high in the southern sky, you should have a chance of seeing some of the Orionids around that time. They're interesting because we believe they're dust particles released by Comet Halley, the well-known comet, also this month it's well worth searching for both Neptune and Uranus, and I've given you little charts to show you where to look around twenty fourth to twenty eighth of october That's when there's no moon in the sky. you'll have much better chance to see it, interestingly, as I think I said last month, Neptune is very close to its discovery position in eighteen forty six It completed its first orbit on July the 11th but because of the earth's positioning around its orbit around the sun it will actually get back to the precise spot where it was first observed I think on my birthday November the 22nd so I'll mention that next month so there we go quite a nice lot of things to look for this month it is good when the nights get longer we haven't got to wait up quite so late or get up so early to see the night sky good hunting (music)
1: Thanks, Ian. And now John Field will tell us what you can see in the southern night sky this month.
7: Kia ora, and welcome to the October Jodcast coming from the Carter Observatory, Wellington, New Zealand. October sees Scorpius and Sagittarius about halfway down towards our western horizon. Below these two constellations, we find the two inner planets, Mercury and Venus. Venus will set about an hour after sunset at the start of the month. Mercury will also be in the twilight sky by mid month. By month's end, both planets will appear close together in the evening sky, and on 28 28th of October they will be in conjunction with the crescent moon. In reality, Venus is 240 million kilometres away from us, whilst Mercury is only 210 million kilometres away. Both will draw closer towards us by month's end. Mercury is a disappointing object for a telescope. Different coloured areas on this planet's tiny disk may be observed with amateur telescopes under favourable conditions. Both Mercury and Venus will reveal their phases in a telescope, which will change as the planet orbits the Sun. The Messenger spacecraft currently in orbit around Mercury has been returning high-detail images of the planet's surface. A laser rangefinder has been busy creating a topographical map of the surface and an X-ray spectrometer has been studying the chemical composition of the surface. After twilight on moonless evenings, the diacal light may be visible in the West. It is seen as a faint, broad column of light and is somewhat reflecting off dust in the plane of our solar system. You will need a reasonably dark sky to observe this, but I saw it quite easily in Rarotonga in late August and pointed out to a number of people. Jupiter is rising in the east after sunset and will be high up in the northern sky by midnight. Binoculars and small telescopes will reveal Jupiter's four largest moons which will change position from night to night. If you cannot see all four moons, the missing moons, one or more, may be hidden behind Jupiter in its shadow or transiting the planet's disk. The brightest true star in our evening sky is Canopus. It will be found in the southeast after sunset and it will slowly climb higher in our southern night sky as night progresses. Whilst it is low down along our horizon, this star will twinkle and change in colour and brightness. This will decrease as it climbs higher. Canopus is estimated to be 300 light years away from us and 13,000 times brighter than our sun. Tamari, Canopus, is Atutahi, the high chief of the stars. Canopus is in fact the second brightest star in our night sky and is only outshone by Sirius. Sirius, though, by comparison, is only 26 times brighter than our sun and 9 light years away from us. Sirius will rise in our eastern sky after midnight, and when it does, the three brightest stars in our night sky, Sirius, Canopus, and Alpha centauri will be sharing the sky along the southern Milky Way to Māori Takarua, the winter star. The southern cross, Crux, can be found in the southwestern sky after sunset and will get lower as the evening progresses. From New Zealand, Crux will never set. It skirts along our southern horizon. Following the southern cross are the two pointed stars, Alpha and Beta Centauri. In the northern sky, we can see a large group of four stars forming the great square of Pegasus. This forms the body of a winged horse and Pegasus was the mount used by the hero Perseus to save Andromeda from a sea monster called Cetus. Epsilon Pegasite is a triple star system consisting of a magnitude 2.9 yellow supergiant star with an eighth magnitude blue companion that is visible in binoculars and small telescopes. Larger telescopes reveal an 11th magnitude companion to the main star. This stellar system is estimated to be 520 light years away. Nearby to Epsilon Pegasi is M15, a magnitude 6 globular cluster. While it was a challenge to the unaided eye, it is easy to see in binoculars or small telescopes. And in binoculars it will appear as a fuzzy star with a nearby 6th magnitude star to guide you. It rises to a bright centre with scattered faint rays leading away from the core. It is about 30,000 light-years away from our solar system. As a bonus, there is a small planetary nebula in front of this star cluster but a large telescope will be needed to see it. Near Aquarius, the water barrier, we find Cetus, the whale. It is found basking alongside the constellation of Eridanus, the river. This constellation is large but faint and it lies in a rather unexciting part of the sky. The ecliptic is close to the boundary of Cetus and is not unknown for planets to wander briefly through this constellation. In 1807 the asteroid Vesta was discovered in Cetus. Alpha Ceti, or Menka, which means nose, is a magnitude 2.5 red giant star, 220 light years away from us. In binoculars, you will see a nearby, magnitude 5.6 blue star, that is about six times further away. Beta Ceti, denid katos, tail of the whale, is a magnitude 2.0 yellow giant star, It is actually the brightest star in the constellation and 96 light years away. Gamma Ceti is a beautiful close double star of magnitudes 3.7 and 6.4, colours of white and yellow, and this system is 82 light-years distant. Omicron Ceton is a well-known red variable star, and it was recognised by the Dutch astronomer David Fabricus in 1596. It varies in brightness from about 3rd magnitude to ninth magnitude, with a period of between 320 and 370 days. At maximum diameter it is slightly more than 200 times that of our sun, or roughly the diameter of the Earth's orbit. At maximum brightness it is an unaided eye object when at minimum good binoculars or small telescope is needed to see it. CETUS contains the interesting star UV-C type. It is a faint but famous type of erratic variable star known as a flare star. These red dwarf stars undergo sudden increases of brightness lasting for only a few minutes the outbursts of the flare star component of UV-CT take it from its normal 13th magnitude up to 7th magnitude. Tau-CT is the closest Sun-like star to our solar system at 11 light-years. Slightly smaller and fainter than our Sun, this star has been found to have a disk of debris surrounding it. As of yet, no evidence of planets have been discovered in the disk. Perhaps we are just too early. As of mid-September, the number of extrasolar planets discovered has reached 685, And we may reach 700 by year's end. And on that exciting note, we wish all our listeners clear skies from the team here at Carter Observatory.
0: Thanks for that, John. And now we get on to the feedback part of the show. And we have a couple of postcards. They actually arrived before the last show went out, but I kind of lost them in a massive pile of papers on my desk. Boo, Jen, boo! I know, but yay, we are talking about them now. (laughs) (laughs) The first one is from Marie, aka Recy Pie, who sent us a postcard from Helsinki. She said she's sorry it's not an astronomy related postcard, but the choice was limited. So instead we've got a lovely one of water and boats and a person on a bike in somewhere that I can't pronounce. The view from somewhere. Another um, thing we can't pronounce. Yeah. She says, Keep up the great podcast, they keep me entertained when I'm travelling and there's no mention of cake.
1: Oh. And I have a postcard from Mal, and I'm looking at it, and I'm very jealous. It's like pictures of blue ocean and sandy beaches from the Gold Coast of Australia. And I want to be there. Nice. But um, they do tell us that we are basically the best podcast of all. So I like you a bit more, even though I'm very jealous that you're in Australia. Good. Uh, We also get an email from uh, Victoria Halliday, who says that she was listening to Dropcast on her 30-minute run. Good for you, running... And um, she said that uh, it was also very good because we were talking about pulsars and white dwarfs, which triggered revision topics for our exams. So good, yeah,
0: that's nice. That we're today. helping.
1: Good luck on your exams.
0: Yeah, good luck on the forum. The forum is back, woo, woo. But it actually came back just before the September extra show went out. So lots of people have been very active on the forum, which is always nice. JR Edge has started a discussion about confusing terminology in astronomy. So all those things like how magnitudes are brighter when they're more negative and the whole early type, late type galaxies always confuses me that was in yeah. our interview with Martin Bureau. So if you have any confusing terminology that you'd like to talk about, either to rant or to ask us, then go and join in with
1: that. Yeah, and, and don't feel bad if you're confused because... I'm an astronomer and I'm confused. Yeah. He's also pointed us to a YouTube channel that's been started by Yale
0: University called Yale Courses. And they have a number of playlists featuring entire lecture courses and also lecture movies. So he's pointed out a couple that Jogcast listeners specifically might be interested in. That's really cool. Earth Unit has told us that we might like to check out NASA's Eyes on the Solar System, where you can visit planets, ride along on spacecraft and have lots of fun. And finally, Bill Keck, too, suggested a London job pub, which we mentioned at the beginning of the show. Um, so November 12th, put that in your diaries. Come along on the forum and tell us you want to come or email
1: us or whatever. It should be good. On Facebook, Jay Underhay says that he was just listening to the podcast about how you can't hear anything in space and find it very interesting. Thanks, Jay. And Dominic Roberts says, what do you guys think of the Tatooine planet? Cool or what? I say cool. Yeah, I mean
0: Megan must think it's cool because she put it in the news. Yeah, I think it's really awesome that we found a planet going round two, two stars. But I'm not happy with the Tatooine. Oh come on! Reference come on! It's the closest we have. Yeah, but it would more be more like Hoth because it's an icy,
6: mm. gassy
0: planet or something. It's not. It's not Earth-like, so it wouldn't be. You wouldn't ever have Luke Skywalker standing looking at two sunsets. I'm a massive Star Wars geek. <laughs> I should probably stop. <laughs> on Flickr. We've had some really great photos added to the group, so you should go and check those out.
1: My favorite one is a photo of a pylon with star trails around it. It's really pretty, very nice. So if you want to get in touch with us, you can do so via the website at www.jotcast.net, on the forum at forum.jotcast.net, on Twitter, twitter.com/jotcast, on Facebook at facebook.com/jotcast, on YouTube, youtube.com/jotcast. And on Flickr at flickr.com
0: slash groups slash jobcast. And that brings us to the end of the show. So all that's left to
1: say is thank you to Greg Sloan for the interview. The editors were Adam Evison, Megan Argo, Claire Britherton, Mel Irfan, and Mark Perver. And the producer was Jen Gupta. And I'd like to apologize if I sound rubbish this show because I am ill.
0: You sound lovely. So until next time, jod on. Bye, everyone.
1: Bye.